Luke chapter 9. Now, I do want to pick up on this series of discipleship that I began last year, and I haven't uh, picked it up yet into the new year. So, um, but again, we're up to a series in part five, and um, just to give us a bit of a refreshing, just to remember what we have looked at, because it's been such a break uh, during that time. But we did look at, firstly, the fact that the disciples were first called Christians, okay? Because we tend to think that, um, you know, the word Christian, the Bible says, go out and make disciples of all the nations, not Christians of all the nations as such. It's disciples is the emphasis. And so, um, and, uh, so the point being is, yes, the disciples were first called Christians, but in the common day, in our modern day, that doesn't mean that all Christians are necessarily disciples after the biblical definition. So we established, looked at that. We looked at spiritual fathers, and the, the disciple has a teacher, and that is usually a Holy Spirit-ordained relationship with an individual that God establishes. You know, So somebody that uh, leads you, teaches you, and kind of uh, 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 disciples you in those formative Um, weeks, months and even years possibly as a Christian. We looked at uh, the cost of discipleship and uh, how great multitudes were with him and how Jesus turned to them and he gave them a real hard saying that they had to process. And so there is a cost to discipleship. There's sacrifice. It will cost us something to truly follow him and put him first in our lives. And we've looked at that. We also looked at um, abiding if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So the disciple is a person of the word, reads the word, meditates on the word, studies the word. The word is the central focus of discipleship and of being a learner. If you don't read your Bible and study the Bible, how are you going to be a disciple of Christ? It's very simple, right? So we've been identifying and defining aspects of biblical discipleship, and it is a very serious issue in the scriptures. And so it's confronting, to be honest, when you look at some of the things that are spoken of in the Bible. They can be quite confronting and they can be quite challenging to us as individuals because um, it's a serious issue and the issues that are addressed will test, will test our hearts. They will convict us of our lifestyle. They will expose sometimes our shallowness to the things of God and our attitude to, to serving God. And, uh, you know, we could always say we could be all be doing more, but at the same time, we need to be ensuring that we are following Jesus. And so when we look at the scriptures and discipleship, we, we, our, our own shallowness to certain things will be exposed. And sometimes the word of God can even offend us. Things can be said that uh, are so confronting that they are downright offensive depending on where our heart's at and our attitude towards spiritual things. But you see, this is, this is the nature of what we're dealing with. And you see it clearly in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, where Jesus himself is dealing with different people and different circumstances, and of which we will consider this morning. And so I'm deliberately making the issue weighty. Why? Because the Bible does. Discipleship is just not a catchphrase. It's a very serious topic. It's a very serious issue that must be understood and applied 
to our lives. And so we want to look at making a biblical account of it. And so we're looking at uh, guidelines, standards, principles towards it. Jesus throughout the Gospels reiterates it over and over and over. He makes it clear. He leaves no doubts of what discipleship is and what it requires from us and to the one who truly desires to follow him and call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ or a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now let me say this as a before we continue. When it comes to the Christian life, we're talking about God is is the one who has made a covenant with us. In salvation, he has saved us. Through the cross, salvation is not of works, it's by grace through faith. So no one can boast. And so our our God is a covenant-keeping God. Our God is a God of covenant. And so in salvation, as we heard this morning, we were sealed with the Spirit. We, have, we, we, are, we belong to him because we have the Spirit of God living in us. And so we have the covenant of the new covenant, or as we know it, the New Testament, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so that's the issue and foundation of the covenant that God has established with us. And we, uh, and through faith uh, in Christ, uh, we have just been justified and we have been born again of the Spirit and Christ lives in us. But you see, as much as that is the reality, is there something that God requires from us this morning? And the answer is, yeah, well, there's many things. But the answer fundamentally is yes. What is, it that, what is one of the things that God requires of us? If he's in covenant with us and we are in covenant with him, what is it that God wants from us? And I submit to you this morning, he wants our commitment. Our commitment. This is our part. Our commitment to him. That is not some laxy-daisy, half-hearted approach, but really when we understand the Bible and the scriptures that is spoken, we're talking about, and especially in the context of discipleship, we're talking about a commitment. He wants us to be committed in our relationship to him. Not to be saved, but because we are saved. And we love him with all of our heart. And so we want to consider this because without commitment to Christ, a full commitment to Christ, again, according to God's word, according to the words of Jesus, as we'll see, we cannot be called his disciples because discipleship revolves around commitment. And so let's read our text in Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Now, this is an interesting portion of Scripture, but again, it deals with the issue of discipleship. And it says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plough 
and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, these are heavy words, aren't they? Again, how many times do we read in the Gospels and different accounts and uh, synoptically that we read and we, di- we, we, we see these uh, examples of where Jesus is really speaking some heavy words and it's quite confronting with these people that he's dealing with. And so it's another one of Jesus' hard sayings. And it's dealing with the cost of discipleship, but also it's dealing in another context with the commitment that is involved in following Jesus Christ. Now, when we use the word commitment, if you do a search in the Bible, commitment, it doesn't, you won't find it. It's actually the word commitment is not, is not there in the Greek. I mean, there is the, there's the word commit and its various aspects, and really the word commitment has its root in the word commit anyway. But, uh, and so that we can draw some understanding of some things. But commitment is something that is central to any relationship and to any cause, and in this case, obviously, the kingdom of God. And in the Greek, the word commit in the, in the scriptures We're not going to look at, there's various aspects and contexts which we won't look at, but I have identified the aspect that relates to what we're dealing with. And it says, in the sense of doing or practicing, to commit, in the sense of doing or practicing. And in the Greek, it comes from a middle voice, and the word means to toil as an occupation, to be engaged in or with to do, to labour for, to trade by, to work. And so in other words, to commit is not just some, you know, desire. (laughs) The commitment means it's in the outward, it's in the work, it's in the outward expression, it's in those outward things that we do. And so, you know, when you're committed to your work, that means you're at work working, right? Because if somebody turns up to work and they're not working, you'll say they're not committed to the job. Because you're identifying the commitment on the basis of their effort, on the basis of what they're doing. And so this is the principle that we are applying to the kingdom of God. In the dictionary, the word commitment means to bind, to obligate, or devote as by a pledge. And so think about that, because we talk about marriage, right? We say marriage is a covenant, but it's, 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 and it's fundamentally a covenant, but it also involves commitment. I'm committed to my wife. My wife is committed to me. We're one. And that commitment is lifelong. Isn't it interesting? People say, I don't believe in marriage. It's just a piece of paper. No, you don't have a problem uh, with paper. You have a problem with commitment, <laughs> Because you know exactly what marriage is. It's not a piece of paper. It's a commitment before God. It's a covenant before God where you're committing yourself. And so, so that's what people are avoiding today. That's why they all want to live in de facto relationships because they want to avoid commitment. Because it's going to cost something. But no, when it's convenient, they just kind of depart. Well, that's not Commitment. And so when it comes to Christ and the church, we're dealing with these issues this morning and we're talking about commitment. Our commitment to Christ, how does that look? 
our commitment to his, his purpose, our commitment to his will, our commitment to uh, all of the things that are associated with Christ, with the Bible, with the church, with his will. And sometimes when we look, I look at Christians and I scratch my head and I say, where is the commitment? Where is their com- where, how, the commitment? Because you've got to be committed to God and that expresses itself practically in so many different ways this morning. And so we are saved. But how we live our Christian lives is a matter of freedom and it's a matter of choice. And so in one sense, you're free to choose. But in another sense, it's clear what choices God expects you to make and what God expects of us. And God requires commitment this morning. In his covenant with you and I, his demand is that we be committed, fully committed. And nothing short of that will be accepted. That's a hard saying, isn't it? Nothing short of that will be accepted. And I'll illustrate some of these things to you in the scripture. But that's the standard. That's the, I mean, I'm not saying we all live up to it. We've all fallen short of God's standard, even in that instance. But doesn't change the reality. It doesn't change the demands. It doesn't change what God is expecting and requiring of us. And so <clears throat> we find these sayings, and our particular text is one of those this morning. You know, we rightly so, and I've noticed some of the brothers here have made mention of it and talk about it, and we, and maybe some here don't know it but there's the issue of lordship salvation and so we we obviously we don't we believe that we are saved by faith you believe on the lord jesus christ and you are saved but that doesn't do away with the lordship of christ in the sense that you know he's paul the apostle he's confronted uh on that day and uh he meets the lord and you know what his first words were lord (laughs) Lord, what do you want me to do? And see, that's, that's the disposition. That's the heart. And it started a journey for Paul that was fully committed. So he was fully committed and zealous for Judaism. He had a zeal and commitment that superseded anyone of his contemporaries, the Bible says. And God took that and then he redirected it and then he, became, uh, uh, he direct, redirected that commitment unto the Lord. And so we have in our text this morning an example that consists or uh, Jesus speaks about three examples or three particular individuals. or would, uh, These are would-be followers of Christ. Now, uh, as I note the fact that, that, that these, are, these are believers because they, each of them acknowledges his lordship. Each refers to him as lord in, uh, in the manner in which they address him. So... They obviously believed in their believers in the sense, but they're saying, well, I will follow you. I'm committed. And so Jesus is going to clarify what that commitment involves, what what is requiring of them. So the word follow, just to establish this in the scriptures this morning, the word follow uh, is interesting because it means, it, it comes from two Greek words, and it means to be in union, and it means a road. And so we are in union with Christ 
And now we are following him. We are on the same path. We are followers. We are on the same road. It means to be in the same way. And it means in the Greek to accompany, especially as a disciple, as it says in the Greek dictionary. And so we are followers. And isn't it interesting that as you read the scriptures, there's various instances, and I won't read them now for time's sake, although I was, but I'm just going to try and cut, not cut things short, but I'll just mention it rather than read it. But in, in various instances, you'll see Jesus calls men to follow him, and it says that they immediately forsook all and followed him. And you read it about Matthew, you read it about um, uh, James and John and Peter, and Jesus says, follow me, and they left their father and their nets, and they followed him. They were in union with him, and they walked together on the road and on the pathway with Christ. They had forsaken all in terms of discipleship to follow him, as Jesus had called them to. So following Jesus means committing ourselves to him. And so isn't it interesting that in our text, as we will discover, these men see themselves as committed. They see themselves as committed. Yet Jesus sees things a little bit differently or at least seeks to clarify what he considers might be some shortcomings in their own heart or in their own life. And not only that, they see themselves as very sincere and well-intentioned. And that's good too. But Jesus sees something more and he realises that good intentions as good as they may be they're still not sufficient because all things find their expression in not uh, what we intend but what we do so Jesus addresses it on that basis and so each was faced with a stringent test there are three individuals here and they were faced with a stringent test and so we can kind of refer this morning and put them in three, in three categories. One is the, we'll see, is the impulsive volunteer. The second is the, re, the reluctant conscript. And the third one is the half-hearted volunteer. And so let's look at these individually. Let's look at verse 57. Because Jesus, it says, he's, he's, he's journeying on the road and someone, someone said to him, in Matthew's gospel, it's a scribe. So someone speaks to him and says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, those words would have been like music to Jesus' ear. Pastor, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. I mean, those words are what we, people want to hear. But Jesus is not so much, I mean, he acknowledges them. There's no doubt about it. And he takes note of the sincere, what appears to be the sincerity of them. And in this man's burst of enthusiasm, he's making himself available and saying, Lord, I want to follow you wherever you go, whatever you, wherever. And so he's genuine. He appears genuine. He appears sincere. And Jesus doesn't question that, nor does Jesus dismiss him, but he does clarify what's required of him. And he says, uh, Jesus uh, says to him in verse 58, foxes have holes 
And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, Jesus is giving this man a snapshot of what it means to follow him. You see, it's one thing to romanticise about the kingdom of God. It's one thing to romanticise about the Christian life. But we see, when you become a Christian and in how wonderful and glorious Christ is, the promises of God, the salvation of God, the, uh, the goodness of God, I mean, everything is glorious. But the kingdom of God, to serve God, is not a bed of roses. It's not a tiptoe through the tulips. There's, there's, there's things in life that test us. There's trials, there's tribulation. And the Bible says we must through much, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. And so in discipleship, uh, this is a fundamental issue. Jesus said to his disciples, are you able to be baptised with the baptism that I'm baptised with? And they said, oh, yes, Lord, yes, absolutely. A baptism of suffering. See, we say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, but sometimes we don't really know what, we, what we're saying yes to or what yes means in the will of God for us. As we surrender ourselves and say, Lord, I will follow you. Jesus says, that's great. But you know what? Remember this. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, are you prepared to be homeless? Are you prepared to accept a lower standard of living in order to follow me and do my will? Now, I'm not saying this is a condition to following Jesus. I'm saying that, you know, like people, somehow you have to be, you know, go be a monk somewhere and pretend spirituality. Somehow that, you know, by disconnecting. That's not what we're talking about. I'm saying that, and as Jesus is saying, well, I don't have a home. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to follow in my footsteps. Meaning that are you prepared to give up all to follow me? Are you prepared to make those sacrifices if that's what I require of you? I was listening recently to um, a series of teachings on Christians in Iran. And I know we've been praying for them in our prayer meetings. And, and I know that some others here are, are aware of some of the dynamics of, of the church in, in Iran and what's happening. But you see, I listened to these individuals and some of the sufferings that they had to endure just to follow Jesus Christ. They, they, they're not, you, know, you can't just go to church and have public worship. And they can't even have Bibles. They're so secretive. And not only that, uh, they, um, you know, uh, one man became a Christian and he had studied for his university degree for four years. And in his fourth year, they told him, unless you renounce your faith, you're going to fail. You're not going to receive your, your, um, uh, your marks for your, for your degree or whatever it was. And, he, and they, had, they have to face those realities, their work and everything else that they had to process. But you see, if they're going to follow Jesus, then they're going to have to make those sacrifices. And whatever the cost is, they say, yes, Lord. And so, but in the West, predominantly, we don't identify with those aspects because we're generally blessed, we prosper and all the rest of it. So we, we say, yes, Lord, yeah, Lord, I'll follow you. But are we prepared to? to walk in the same path as some of our brethren are in other parts of the world. And we, I'm sure, God willing, in those moments, God gives us the grace to do whatever he requires of us. But we still have to be willing to do that. This is the pathway of discipleship. You see, the enthusiast this morning, like this man in our text, he has to become a realist. 
has to realize if you're going to follow Jesus, then it means it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to be committed. You're going to have to give up some things in order to do the will of God and obey God and do what he wants you to do. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. That's the nature of discipleship. That's the nature of being a follower of Jesus. So this brings us to the second individual this morning. And we find him in verse 59. Now, Jesus, having, having this individual ask Jesus this question, Jesus is now taking the opportunity to uh, go further with it. And in verse 59, it says, Then he, Jesus, said to another. So Jesus has received this question, and so he's taking now the opportunity to establish a principle and teach a lesson. And so he's now directed a question towards an, to another person. And he says to this person, Follow me. There's those words, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Wow. <laughs> let the dead bury their own dead. Let me first go back and bury my father, and then I'll follow you, Jesus. Now that seems like a... Logical thing, right? Reasonable, rational. But Jesus says, no, you let the dead bury their own dead. You come and preach the kingdom of God. Now, as I've studied this through, you know, people tend to think that, you know, that what's being said here is that this man's father has just died and he has to go and bury his father. That's not what is going on here. This is not what's happening. Okay, the expression and, and to, uh, in Jewish custom and tradition, uh, it meant that this, what this man is saying is, is, let me first go back home and attend to my father's needs and to uh, care for uh, and accommodate all his interests. And then when I've got everything in order, then I will come and follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, your interests now are not your family's interests. Your interests are not your father's interests. Now, you've got to understand, this is the whole point that of, of the family. He raised his child to take on these responsibilities and these commitments. He was to be committed to the home and to the interests of the family and of the father. Jesus says, no, it's not going to happen. You want to follow me, he says to him. He says, sure, but let me first just go take care of a few things and then I'll come back. Jesus said, no, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow or come and preach the kingdom of God. That was his will for that individual. And again, so this is the reason why we call him the reluctant conscript is because here's an individual who, the first one was the volunteer, the enthusiastic volunteer. Lord, I'll do it like Peter. I'll die for you, Lord. Yeah, Jesus says. Well, and so, uh, and again, the second one is conscripted by Christ, where he says to him, you follow me. And he's reluctant in that sense. Now, he wants to, but he still is wanting to just have control and set things in order. And, he's, and, and Jesus is saying to him, no, that's not good enough. You know, when we talk about conscription, we understand conscription in the context generally of, of an army. You know, when, when, when a nation is in war, you get conscripted. 
And you don't say, oh, look, I've just got to take care of a couple of things and then I'll come down and I'll uh, join the army. When you get conscripted to the army, you drop everything and you go. And in conscription, you know when you go and join the army, you don't just get up at whatever time in the morning you want. You don't just go and do, oh, I still wonder what I'll do today. And No, no, it's like the alarm goes off at whatever time you're up, you're marching, you're, you have your, it's, it's discipline. It's a disciplined environment. And you are conscripted to the army to serve because you're going to have to go onto the battlefield, onto the front lines and fight. And if you're not prepared to, as, an, as a soldier, then you're in serious trouble. That's what discipleship is. This is a principle of discipleship. It's not the only principle, but it is one principle. And so here's this con- Jesus conscripts this guy. And uh, he's kind of a little reluctant, as we see. Now, Jesus addresses him in relation to the issues of his life. In other words, he's saying, let, 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 let them concern themselves with their own affairs. They are not yours anymore. You now must come and preach the kingdom of God. And that's, what, that's true. You know, the kingdom of God can make those demands from you, those sacrifices. When you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? We don't know what God's will is going to be for our lives. But can I ask you this morning, have you ever fully yielded? Have you fully submitted? Have you fully come before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because these are, these are uh, I say, well, I want to follow Jesus. Well, do you understand what it means for you to follow Jesus? What does it mean for you? What's God asking of you? See, Jesus will never take second place. Just think about that. I'll say it again. Jesus will never take second place. He calls us and he requires immediate and unequivocal obedience. That is the nature of the gospel. It's the nature of discipleship. He says, your commitment is to me first, not your family. That's why Jesus said, I don't think I've come to bring peace on earth. He says, I've come to bring a sword. And your enemies are going to be those of your own household. I'm going to set a mother against daughter and Father, son, and those, your enemies will be those of your own household. That's where, that's where the gospel brings those divisions. Because Jesus says, your, your loyalty is to me now. I'm first. You're my disciple. You're in, I, I've made a covenant with you and your commitment's to me. My, my, my will, my priorities for your life. This is, the, this is the nature of the gospel this morning. This is the nature of discipleship. And I know it's heavy, but it's true. This is why Jesus puts it here. Then there's the third person that we find in verse 61, the half-hearted volunteer. How do we know that? Well, we, we know it based on Jesus' response in verse 62. But it says in verse 61, And another also said to him, Lord... I will follow you. There's another well-intentioned, seems like an honest fellow. Yep, I want to follow you, Lord. But let me first, now notice those words, but let me first. 
but let me first go bury my father. I mean, sorry, <laughs> let me, <laughs> no, that was the other one. Let me first go bid them farewell who are at my house. Let me go bid them farewell who are at my house. Now, again, that just seems like a logical, sincere request. Like, that's at face value. Like, what's wrong with that? Okay, go say goodbye. I mean, but you see, there's something deeper that Jesus is seeing in the heart. That we know that based on his response in verse 62. So Jesus is, is, is addressing, because, you know, as we looked at in discipleship before, remember in John 6 how Jesus knew those who didn't truly believe? That's what the scripture says. They all said, we're disciples. They all said, we're believers. But the scripture says Jesus knew who those who did not believe, or in other words, were not true believers. And, uh, and he sorted them out by giving them a hard saying, and they were offended. And the Bible says many of his disciples walked with him no more. And so it's interesting to note that because Jesus, as again in John 2, it says Jesus knows what's in man. He didn't commit himself to those multitudes because he knew what was in man and he didn't need to be testified of what was in man because Jesus knows our hearts. We can't see the surface things, but Jesus sees everything. He knows the heart and the intentions and the motives and the thoughts. And we can sit in church and we can present ourselves, but only the word of God, which is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so, so he, this is where Jesus responds to this man after he says, I'll follow you, but let me first go. It's me first, exactly. That's exactly. I had in my note, me first, just right there, <laughs> and you said it. And it's exactly the point, me first. And that's not how the kingdom of God operates. See, Jesus discerned something deeper, and his heart was more centred in pleasing his family and friends. You know, he would have went back to his family and said, look, oh, I think I'm going to follow Jesus. And they would have said, hey, listen. They would have said, uh, you know, who knows what would have happened. They would have possibly said something to discourage him. They said, oh, look, do this first and then do that. I don't know. We can only speculate. But what we can determine is from Jesus' response in verse 62, he says, but Jesus said to him, Jesus listens to these comments. And he doesn't say, oh, that's great, fantastic. He says these words, no one having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, this is a weight, these are weighty words. Now, Jesus is accepting that this man is genuine in his, and sincere in his profession, but he's making sure. You know what? Anyone looking, having put his hand to the plough and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Or in other words... Jesus is saying to this individual, this, uh, who, who we can determine is half-hearted, at least, in his, his commitment. Because when he says, but let me first go back, Jesus determined, discerned something far deeper at work inside the individual. This is, why, this is what prompts Jesus to address the issue in the manner in which he does. And so, is not fit. That word fit means ready for use 
well-placed. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. You cannot be used of God. We can't be meat for the master's use. As as Timothy would, Paul writes to Timothy, we have vessels of honour and vessels of dishonour. And let us cleanse ourselves and, uh, and let us make ourselves meat for the master's use. Or in other words, fit for purpose. You see, because if we are, uh, as Jesus says, if no one having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God, you cannot be used by me if this is the attitude of your heart. Now, these are heavy words because, you know, when I think of the word looking back and, and, and there's a, a half-heartedness or there's a divided heart, I think, uh, I, th- I tend to think of, um, remember Lot's wife. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. He says, lest your, Jesus warns us and he says, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and the cares of this life and all of these things in the world to the point where you neglect my purposes. Because when we do that, we are not fit for the kingdom of God. And we've got to be careful about looking back. You know, Joe, uh, Lot's wife, what, what was the issue? What did the angels say to her? Where they said, get out of Sodom and God's going to destroy it. They said, get out and don't look back. And what does... Uh, they said, flee, run to the, this place. And what happens? She looked back and uh, she was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, my point is, is that w- w- having that division of heart makes us not fit for the kingdom of God. It makes us unuseful to the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that you're going to become a pillar of salt here this morning, okay? <laughs> I'm illustrating the heart. I'm illustrating the issue of looking back. Because if you're looking back, then how can you go forward? How can you fully commit? You can't. And so therefore, it's unacceptable. See, this is such, you know, let me illustrate this further. Remember Paul the Apostle, he went on his first missionary journey and he took with him uh, an individual, went Barnabas, and there was another individual that accompanied them, John Mark. And the Bible says as they journeyed in their missionary journey preaching the gospel, John Mark at a certain place at a certain time in the journey, he said, you know what, I think I'm going to go home. <laughs> so John Mark abandons Paul the Apostle and Barnabas and he heads back home to Jerusalem. I don't know why. Doesn't, scripture doesn't tell us, but maybe he just got tired or maybe it was hard work or the demands were too great. I'm not sure. But at the end of the day, he said, you know what, I'm going back to Jerusalem. So the Bible says that he departed and went back. And so later, when Paul goes to his second missionary journey with Barnabas, what does the scripture tell us? They had a what? They had a contention. And the contention between Paul and Barnabas was great. Why? Because Paul said, Barnabas was related to John Mark, and he said, let's take John Mark. And, And Paul said, I'm not... I'm not interested in John Mark. He was intolerant. He said he forsook me in the first journey, so I'm not taking him for the second one. And the, and and you got to understand the Bible. You know, people debate this all the time: who was right, Paul or Silas, Paul or Barnabas? And that's a whole other issue. But the point is, is that Paul said, "I'm intolerant of the fact because Mark proved himself. He was not committed. He was not committed. Now that's a. But he went." You can say, but he went, come on, he came, he stayed with us three quarters of the journey, Paul. No, he was not committed because he fell short and his commitment failed because in that context, the the requirement for commitment was far higher and the demands were much greater. But still, that's the way the kingdom of God works. 
And so I'm illustrating these points because Paul said, John Mark is not fit for the kingdom of God. He's not fit to come on this journey, this missionary journey. We know later, uh, scripture tells us that he, uh, he calls for John Mark and says he's useful to me. So whatever took place, there was redemption, reconciliation. Maybe, you know, Paul said, yep, I see he's fit for purpose. But at this moment, Paul had judged, judged it such. And that's how it is. This is, what, this is what, when we talk about commitment this morning, we're talking about fully committed to Christ, his work, his purpose. The standard is high. And God sets the bar high, not man. And so we need to examine ourselves in light of this this morning and ask ourselves, what is, is my attitude me first? Me first and then God? Because if that's the case, that is not how the kingdom of God works. When you are committed to God and you're committed to his work, then you are committed and that finds its expression in many different aspects. But that you can see in the same manner, that word commit means to labour, to toil, to work. And you can tell somebody that's committed to their work because they're there on time. <laughs> they're there, they're labouring. They're there, they're working. And they're working hard, but you get the ones that are on the job and they're just kind of musing around. You don't want them on the job, do you? It's like you're saying, how can I get rid of these people? They're like, oh, I'll just call the union. <laughs> a few of those on your job site there. Um, yeah, I know you're not one of them, brother. <laughs> but that's the way the kingdom of God works, church. And I pray that we can see that because we want to be disciples and we want to be fully committed. And that commitment will find its expression in all the things that we do as being part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, leave it there and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we just thank you this morning for the grace of God. We thank you, Lord, for your presence uh, that has been amongst us, Lord, for the testimonies that we have heard. For all that's been shared, God, you've been glorified in our midst and we thank you. We thank you for the word of God that has come to us this morning. Let us, Lord, receive it. Let us, Lord, meditate upon it. Let us consider these things, God, as they're spoken and not just cast them aside. God, I ask your blessing upon each and all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this morning.